Oh God, you are awesome. (laughs) You are so faithful to us. Lord, so often we forget that. But I pray that you'd remind us of that this morning. You'd encourage our hearts and that you would teach us how to keep our hearts more open to you than ever before. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. The man was poring over the letter. It was an ancient letter. I mean, ancient relatively. It was about 60 to 70 years old. And as he read through the letter, he was looking line after line, reading it very carefully, trying to discern exactly what message the writer was trying to get across. Now, this man was very wise. In fact, many leaders of great world powers had relied upon his wisdom, but he was struggling with something. If you were to see him there, he was probably about 84 years old. You can imagine his white stately hair. He was a leader in his country. He was a man who many people looked up to. Some were very envious of. Others looked to him when they needed wisdom. And as Daniel poured over that letter from Jeremiah, reading it line by line, there was something important on his mind. You see, in Daniel chapter 8, God had revealed to Daniel that something was going to take place. He said up to 2,300 days and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Now to us, that's good news. As Seventh-day Adventists, and if you don't know about the sanctuary being cleansed, I'd love to sit down and have a Bible study with you or others in our church would love to study with you on that topic. It's an amazing topic. But to Daniel, this is bad news. Because 2,300 days... Is a long time, especially because the angel said, and this refers to the end of time. This isn't for now, but this refers to 2,300 years of time. And Daniel's thinking, what? I've been a captive for over 60 years. I've been praying for Jerusalem. Every day I get up and I go and I pray at my window. I went to the lion's den praying for my people. And now you're going to tell me that for 2,000 more plus years, until the sanctuary is going to be restored, I don't understand. And at the end of chapter 8, it says that Daniel was sick and he fainted because he did not understand the vision. He's troubled. And so what does he do? And what do you do when you're troubled? What do you do when you don't understand what's going on in the world? There's all kinds of chaos in the world. Where do you turn? Daniel chapter 9 and verse 1. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, you remember that's the same Darius who was tricked into throwing Daniel into the lion's den over prayer. Of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Where does Daniel turn when he doesn't understand? Where was it? To the Lord. He turns to the Lord. Exactly. And how does he do that? Did he just turn and look up to heaven? No, specifically, he goes and he begins to pour over the message that the Lord had sent through Jeremiah. It's pretty fascinating if you read in Jeremiah chapter 29. It 
describes this message that was given to them. It was multiple messages that were given. But in Jeremiah 29, it says that Jeremiah wrote this letter about 70 years that were going to be, they were going to spend in captivity. He scrolled, scrolled up this letter. He gave it to two special messengers and he sent them across that desert from Jerusalem to Babylon with this important message for them to understand. And here Daniel is reading this some 60 years, close to 70 years later, and he's realizing that that 70 years is about to come to its completion. When I read about the story of Daniel, I think, man, I wish I had a relationship with God like that. You ever wish that? You ever wish that if somebody had a a perplexing problem like Nebuchadnezzar had, that you could just pray to God and then you would have a, a dream and you could come and you could, or you'd have the vision interpreted to you and you could come and you could tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was. You wish that you had the kind of relationship with God that prayer was not just a form that you do. You know how it goes. Like there's one guy who I, I meet with periodically and at lunch he always says the same exact prayer over his lunch. Now if you do that, I'm not here to condemn you. But he always says, Lord, thank you for what we're about to eat and something about people in other countries. May they be blessed. And I'm like, does he even know what he's saying? He repeats the same prayer. But have you ever found that prayer can become a form to you? That you go to sleep and you kneel by your bed and you say, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for giving me a good night's sleep, Lord. I pray for my family. And then you go off to sleep and you really don't pay much attention to that prayer. For Daniel, prayer wasn't like that. For Daniel, prayer was essential. If you think about it, when King Darius makes this this law by his leaders telling him to do it, He makes this law in Daniel chapter 6 that nobody should go and pray except for to the king Darius himself. Actually, it's not chapter 6. But anyway, he tells him that they're going to be thrown into the lion's den. But Daniel, what does he do? Prayer to him is more than a form. It's more than a routine. It's so important to him that he goes to his window. He kneels down. And he looks out the window and he begins to pray just like he'd done three times a day, just like his custom was. Because to him, prayer made a difference. To him, prayer was valuable. So I look to this story and I say, how can I learn to pray like Daniel? How can I value prayer like he did? How can I appreciate this communion with heaven? I know that it's important, but so often it becomes just a form. It just becomes something that we go through. Oh, it's the 10 days of prayer again? Okay, let's go and show up for 10 days and then we'll go on about our year. But God is longing for something so much more. And I believe that that starts here in verse 2 because how was Daniel inspired for this beautiful prayer that he goes on to pray in Daniel chapter 9? How is he inspired for it? The first thing we notice is that he's pouring over the Bible. Jeremiah's prophecies about the 70 years. He's pouring over this. He's reading through Bible prophecy. And as he's looking at it and he doesn't understand, he's led to pray more earnestly than he's ever prayed before. Look at verse 3. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make request by prayer and supplications with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. He's in earnest about this. He says, God, you've got to do what you've promised. I read the prophecies and it promises that you're going to deliver us from captivity. 
And he doesn't just sit back and say, okay, let's see what God does. But instead, he goes to his knees in earnest prayer. He's, he puts sackcloth on. He puts ashes, just this form of saying he's in, in mourning. He's desperate for God to do something. With fasting, he's, he's wanting to symbolize that I am hungry for God to answer this prayer. And then verse 4 continues. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We've rebelled, done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. How do we dare to pray like Daniel prayed? First of all, we see that Daniel studied Bible prophecy. It's really convenient that right now you can show up on Sabbath mornings and you can come here to a couple different Bible study classes at 9.30 in the morning. You can study Bible prophecy. Can Bible prophecy inspire our prayers? It can if we're studying it, not to just look at the news and try to figure out what's happening in the world, but if we're wanting a relationship with Jesus, if we're wanting to, to draw close to a real and living God, that is what took place for Daniel. He studied the Bible. He, he looked into these things that he didn't understand clearly, and Bible prophecy inspired him to want to know this God more, to want to pray, to want to seek wisdom, and to want to seek for God to act. But we also see, how does Daniel start his prayer? He starts it by confessing and saying, you're the great and awesome God. He acknowledges his goodness. When we come to pray, when I think about some need that I have, be it the broken water pipe, or the church furnace that's not working, or if it's my car that's broken down, or if it's my child who I'm worried about. If whatever I come to pray for, if I want to dare to pray like Daniel prayed, I need to start by acknowledging who I'm coming to. You see, I have this subtle tendency in my own experience of coming to God and asking him to be better than he is. Does that make any sense? I come to God and I say, hey, God, I see how you're doing things there. Yeah, I, I see that you're, you're working in this person's life like that. But here's what you really should be doing. If you just did this in their life, their lives would be a whole lot better. So God, if you just listen to me, the world would be a better place. I don't really say that because that would sound arrogant. But do you ever feel that inside? Like, God, if you would just listen to me, this world would be a better place. Daniel doesn't start his prayer like that. Daniel starts his prayer by saying, God, you are great and you are awesome. And if you were to read on through this chapter, I'm just going to list off the things that he goes on to say. He says, God, you're great, you're awesome, you're covenant keeping. That means you're faithful to us constantly. You fulfill your end of the deal every single time. Even when we don't fulfill our end, you continue to come through for us. You're merciful. You don't hold our sins against us. You're righteous. That means you're constantly loving. You always treat us with justice. You're forgiving. You confirm your word. You saved Israel. And he talks about how he brought them out of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea. God, you are awesome, Daniel prays. This is the first and most important lesson that we can learn from Daniel. 
is to pray to God as the awesome and good God that he is. Let your prayers be informed by Bible prophecy, but pray to God as the awesome and good God that he is. But then he goes on and he acknowledges something else. He acknowledges how bad he is. Just think about this for a second. Imagine that somebody wanted to take out a loan from you. And they come to you and they say, okay, listen, Mira, I want to take out a loan from you. So um, I have a lot of debt and I've failed on a lot of my past loans. And they list about all of these problems that they have. And then they say, will you give me a loan? Or imagine that you go to a king and you say, hey, hey, king, I have done this wrong. I've stolen. I've broken this law. I've broken this law. So what I want you to do for me is, that's not how we tend to want to get things from people, right? We tend to try to figure out, well, what did I do right? What things could I bring that would like present myself to this person in a way that they would want to do what I'm asking them to do? But look at how Daniel represents himself and his people. He says this, we've sinned, we've committed iniquity. We've done wickedly. We've rebelled. We've departed from your precepts and judgments. We haven't listened to your prophets. We have shame in our faces. We're unfaithful. We have not obeyed your voice. We have not walked in your laws. We've transgressed your laws. We've departed from obedience. And on top of all that, we haven't even prayed. So the next time you go to God, I want you to think about something. Why are you asking God to answer your prayers? Because if you're anything like me, when I go to pray, I'll give you an example that happens to me every single week. When I go to pray about giving a sermon, when I'm thinking about, okay, there's going to be people sitting there looking at me that need something from you, Jesus, in order for the Holy Spirit to give me something to share with them, God, you've got to do this, why? Why am I trying to convince him to do this? Like we said already, we shouldn't even be trying to convince him because he is good. But second of all, I tend to think, well, okay, this past week, did I get upset? Was I frustrated? Did I? And we start thinking about who we are. Do you ever have that in mind? I mean, sometimes we give this lip service, if you know what I mean. Like, we'll say, God, I know that I'm a, a worthless person. I know that I've, I've messed up. I know that I haven't done everything right. Uh, but in the back of our mind, we're thinking, okay, so he's going to be excited because I'm, uh, I'm confessing these things, and he's going to answer because uh, I went to church this past Sabbath. In fact, I went to Sabbath school too, and I've started giving this Bible study to this person. And, and, and is that why God answers prayer? Daniel doesn't come to God like that. Daniel says, you are great, you are awesome, you are mighty, you're covenant-keeping, you never fail. But we have failed time and time again. And that's all I have to offer, is that we failed, but you're good. We failed, but you are good. He goes on to expound a little bit more We're going to look specifically at that last one. We have not prayed. But first, look at verse 6, going through 
Daniel 9 and verse 6, it says, Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers and all the people of the land. Now remember, he's reading this letter from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah recounts again and again and again how I tried to tell them that Babylon is going to come and sack Jerusalem. And then they ended up throwing me in a pit and they ended up mistreating me and they never listened to me. And he says that time and time again. They didn't listen to him. But Jeremiah also said some other things that we'll see in just a second. But then Daniel goes on to say this. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not, what does it say? We have not made our... Okay, hang on. I think some people just went to sleep. Can you stand up again one more time? Because <laughs> I know that you can read. I really know you can read, all right? <laughs> Let's try reading this together. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God. Okay, you can sit down. Good, <laughs> good. We have not prayed, he said. Is that true? Is this the reality of what the captives in Babylon have not done? Zechariah presents something interesting in Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 5. The people come to Zechariah. Actually, in Zechariah, uh, they send a message to the priests in the temple. At this point, they're rebuilding Jerusalem. And they send a message and they say, Should we keep fasting and doing what we did every single time every single fifth month for years and years. And God responds to them by saying this, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months during those, what does it say? Seventy years. That's the 70 years of captivity. This is the 70 years that Daniel is praying about. This is where Daniel is at the end of this, wanting God to show up to rescue his people at the end of 70 years. He says, during that time when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and the seventh months, during those 70 years, did you really fast for me? For me? And you hear the angst in God's heart. He says, yeah, I know, you're going through the motions. You were fasting, you were mourning, you were praying. But you weren't praying about what was on my heart. You weren't really praying to me. You were praying selfish prayers. You were praying that, that Jerusalem would be rebuilt. You were praying for Israel to be restored. You were praying for your captivity to be taken away. But I had been telling you to pray for something entirely different than that. Just look at that letter from Jeremiah. Uh, first, we'll look at Review and Herald, February 9, 1897. It says, There had been a kind of prayer offered. Commonplace, self-justifying prayer. But not the prayer that comes from a broken heart and contrite spirit. Daniel makes no plea on the ground of his own goodness. There had been a form of prayer, a self-justifying prayer that had been offered by God's people. But Daniel doesn't go there. He just says, look, we haven't done what's right, but you are good and you are merciful and you are forgiving. So that letter in Jeremiah 29 verse 1 it tells us about how this letter was written by Jeremiah the prophet, and he sends it away to the captives. And then going on in verse 4, it says this, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all who are carried away captive, whom I have carried to be carried, caused to be carried away from Jerusalem to Babylon. 
So this is the letter that's written to the captives. It comes to them. You imagine that, that they open it up. They say, okay, Jeremiah told us that we were going to be taken away as captives. That happened. So maybe we should listen and heed what, what this letter has to say to us. And as they begin to read, they're fully convinced that Jeremiah has lost his mind. Because it goes on to say in verse 5, build houses and dwell in them. Plant gardens and eat their fruit. He goes on to say, marry wives and have children. And have your, your children marry wives and have children. Then in verse 7, and seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. And pray to the Lord for it. For in its peace, you will have peace. What does he tell him to pray for? For peace, right. For the peace of who? For the peace of the city, what city? Jerusalem? No, not Jerusalem. That's a very good guess, though. Seek the peace of the city where I have caused you to be carried away captive. God tells them to pray for Babylon? You mean that wicked city where like Nebuchadnezzar came and he destroyed their temple, he destroyed their city, he destroyed absolutely everything, he put them in chains, he carried them across... He made them eunuchs. He totally mistreated and abused them. And God is telling them to pray for the peace of Babylon. But they didn't really pray. They weren't really praying for the things that were on God's heart. It's tough to pray for your enemies, isn't it? Have you discovered that in your life? It can be really hard to pray for your enemy. So this last week, I went to the Department of Motor Vehicles. And everything you've ever heard about the Department of Motor Vehicles, I'm afraid is true. I'm here to tell you that this morning. Because I walked in there, I got there at what I thought was 8 a.m., but apparently the guy at the door told me I should have been there a minute earlier. But I had an appointment, so he quickly told me to get to the other end of the building, to this computer, and treated me like I was not a human. I got to the other end of the building. I start filling this thing out, and this lady's like, sit down in that chair. I was like, okay, I'll sit down in the chair. I'm sorry that I'm standing up. Not friendly at all. I was thinking, okay, I don't know that I like these people very much. (laughs) I finally finished filling that out, and I'm waiting in line to go up to that same lady who told me so generously to sit down. And I walk up to the counter, and she says, okay, give me this information and this information, and I need the proof of address for where you live. I'm like, okay. I gave her my social security card, my driver's license, my passport. I gave her everything that is of value to me in life. And then I said, okay, I can prove where I live. Here's the letter from the DMV. She said, no, that won't cut it. I said, okay, well, here's a letter saying that my wife lives at the same place. I know that won't work either. What do you want me to do? I, I, you, you should know better, sir. But I think that in your car, you might have something there that has your name and address on it called the registration. And you have 60 seconds to go and get it and to be back here at my desk. I'm now running through the Department of Motor Vehicles at 8 o'clock in the morning. And my heart is upset. I'm thinking when I get back there, I'm going to slam this down on her desk. I'm going to tell her about my registration. But thankfully, I had to run a little ways. By the time I got to my car, I'm opening it up. I'm thinking, okay. This lady's having a really bad day. God, could you help me to love this person? God, 
what could I do to make this person's life better? I finally found my DMV notice and I go running back in there. She's helping somebody else, but then she helps me. And as I began to have another conversation with her, I began to just try to be as friendly as I could possibly do. And I'm praying in the back of my mind, God, help this lady to have a better day. And I noticed that she was miserable. She was unhappy. She was blowing her nose. She was coughing. I'm thinking, don't get my baby sick, but I'm going to keep praying for you, right? <laughs> so finally at the end as I was leaving, I said, ma'am, I just want to say I hope that you feel better. She looked at me with a smile on her face and said, thank you so much. What if I hadn't have prayed for my enemies? There's been plenty of times when I haven't prayed for my enemies. There's been plenty of times where I've prayed for them, but I haven't really prayed for them, if you know what I mean. I've prayed for them the, the, some of those psalms that have all the curses in them type of prayers. I haven't been praying that their lives would be enriched, that they would be better for my prayers for them. But Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, pray for your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Pray for those who spitefully use you. Jeremiah tells the captives, you've got to pray for the peace of Babylon. We need to be praying for Babylon, not just pointing our fingers at Babylon, but praying for people who might be our enemies. Love how it goes on to say in verse 10, for thus, thus says the Lord, after 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. You've got 70 years, and what I want you to do is to pray that Babylon has peace and prosperity, that things go well there. And friends, God has called us to do the same thing. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he tells us to pray for all kings, for all who are in authority. He tells us to pray for Republicans and Democrats. Not literally, but they are in authority. He tells us to pray for our enemies, for the people that we don't agree with, to pray for them. And then he goes on to say, so that there could be peace, because God is desirous of saving all men. God wants everybody to be saved, and so we've got to pray for everybody, even that guy next door who can never remember. You know what? You, you just filled in the blank in your mind. I know you did. Pray for that person. I want to tell you a story this morning about a girl named Ruby. Ruby Bridges was just six years old when it came time for her first day at school. Her mom said, hey, Ruby, we want to pray with you before you go to school today. Prayed with her. Said, I'm actually going to come to school with you. And it was kind of odd because this car pulled up and these four big guys were inside the car and Ruby was ushered into the car and her mom went with her to school. As they're pulling up to her, her new school and she's getting close to the school, she says, I thought maybe it was Mardi Gras or something. She was in uh, New Orleans. She said, I thought it was Mardi Gras or something because there was all of these crowds there and they all had these signs and they were all shouting. As she got out of the car, they escorted her into the school and I think she soon began to realize that they were shouting at her. You see, Ruby was the first ever African-American girl to attend this school. 
They had decided in New Orleans that although it had been voted six years before to get rid of segregation, that finally the time had come to desegregate schools. So they said, we're going to take little Ruby and we're going to put her in this school as the first one to desegregate this school. So people held up signs about how God had said for tribes to be separated and all these other things and were screaming hateful things. But she walked up into the school And as she walked up into the school, she went inside, and there's video clips of this you can see. All of a sudden, they began to rush the school, and moms began to run into the school, and then they came out with their kids. And people interviewed them, saying, why are you pulling your kid out? And they used not nice language to say, because this little African-American girl has come to our school. 500-plus kids in that school were pulled out of school that day. Many of the teachers walked out refusing to teach classes that day because there was one African-American girl at their school. Some days when she came to school, they would hold a little coffin with a little little African-American baby in it to terrify Ruby about what they wanted to do to her. Talk about enemies. Talk about, this is in the 50s, talk about people who are hateful. Talk about people who it would be difficult to pray for. Would you be able to pray for people like that? If you're Ruby and you're walking up to school and you see somebody holding a coffin indicating that they want to put you in it, it's pretty interesting because Mrs. Henry stubbornly decided, I am going to teach this girl. She only had one girl in her classroom, but she began to teach her day in and day out. And she would watch as Ruby began to come to school each day. And one day she noticed that as Ruby was coming up the steps to the school, that she stopped near the protesters and she was talking to them. And so once Ruby got up into school, she said to Ruby, Ruby, why is it that you're talking to these people? She said, I wasn't talking to them. I was just saying a prayer for them. Ruby, you pray for these people? Oh, yes. Well, why do you do that, Ruby? Because they need praying for, Ruby said. Ruby, why do they need you to pray for them? Because I should. Her parents had told her that she should pray for all people. Well, Ruby... What do you pray for these people who are holding coffins, who are your enemies? What exactly do you pray for them? Well, she went on to say, I pray for me, first of all, that I would be strong and not afraid. And then I pray for my enemies that God would forgive them. Jesus prayed on the cross, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Little six-year-old Ruby began to pray for her enemies. Do I pray for my enemies? Do I pray for that person who's really annoying in my life? Do I pray for that person who hurt me deeply? Do I pray for the people in my life that I simply can't stand? Do we pray for our enemies? Ruby prayed for her enemies, and I believe that that's exactly what God wanted for the Israelites to do while they were in Babylon. The letter to Jeremiah goes on to say in verse 11, For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, says the Lord, 
thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. I know the type of God that I am. I'm the God who's always thinking about how to make every single person on this planet's life better. I'm the one who has seven billion people in mind, and every one of them I want to come to a knowledge of salvation. I died on the cross for the sins of every single one of them, and I want them to be saved. And I want you to join me in that desire. That's when we really begin to pray, when we pray like Jesus. But notice how it goes on to say, Then you will call upon me and go and pray to me, and I will listen. When you have that heart, the desire of the salvation of others, then your prayers will be effective. Then verse 13, this beautiful promise, and you will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Not that God is hiding from us, but because Satan has blinded us in so many ways, we've become so confused about who God is and what he's really like, that our prayers simply aren't anything like what's on his heart. But God is longing for us to understand who he is and to open up our hearts and to pursue the same passion that's on his heart, and that is to make other people's lives better. Jeremiah 29, 14 goes on to say, I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will bring you back from your captivity. Do you want to dare to pray like Daniel prayed? To study Bible prophecy, to acknowledge his goodness, to acknowledge our badness, to recognize that God is good and I'm not. And then to plead his goodness, to say, God, you're the God who's merciful, who wants to answer our prayers. God, I plead your mercy in my life and in this person's life. Daniel 9 and verse 18, he goes on in his prayer. He says, for we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. That has to be why we pray. We don't pray because we have anything to offer. We don't pray because the more that we pray, somehow this will change God. But we pray because he's merciful and because there's a great controversy going on and we want to join him in whatever he lives to do in making intercession for our salvation. Dare to pray like Daniel. Plead for his goodness and pray for him to be glorified through his institutions. It's interesting how Daniel goes on to pray. Verse 19, O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. He does pray for Jerusalem. He prays for God's special witness to the nations. He prayed for Jerusalem to be restored, for the sanctuary to be rebuilt, so that people could come to a knowledge of Jesus. Review and Herald goes on to say this, February 9, 1897. I address those who believe that we are living in the very last periods of this earth's history. I entreat you to take upon your own souls a burden for our churches, our schools, and our institutions. Do you pray for our church? I just want to say a huge thank you to those of you who pray for our church. And I know many of you do. Many of you say how often you're praying for this church. And I just want to say thank you for that. And I want you to be praying for... Mr. and Mrs. Khan, and for our school and for all of our volunteers up there. And to be praying for God's church that Jesus would be glorified through his church. Because these are the types of things that we begin to pray when we're willing to dare to pray like Daniel. That God who heard Daniel's prayer will hear ours when we come to him in contrition. Our necessities are as urgent. Our difficulties are as great. And we need to have the same intensity of purpose and in faith roll our burden upon the great burden bearer. There is need for hearts to be as deeply moved in our time 
as in the time when Daniel prayed. We need to have the same urgency. We need to be looking at Bible prophecy and saying, wow, look at what's going on in the world. God wants to save everybody. That's why time is going on. I have got to pray earnestly, just like Daniel, who fasted and prayed, who was saying, God, you are good. And we've fallen so far short of that. Would you please cause your face to shine on your sanctuary? Would you please reveal your glory? Then in verse 21, he goes on to say, the answer that came to him. While he's still praying, Daniel says, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, that mightiest angel in heaven, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. Did you know that when you pray, angels are sent from heaven? How cool is that? Does that help inspire you to want to pray? To know that when I bow down and I begin to say my prayers, maybe I'm by my bed and I begin to pray for that uncle who doesn't know Jesus yet, that God actually sends an angel from heaven to fly, to to make a difference in somebody's life. How amazing is prayer? It says the moment that you started praying, I was caused to fly swiftly. God said, hey, go down there quick. You need to rescue him out of this situation. Then verse 22, and he informed me. And talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. And at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you that you are greatly beloved. How awesome is that? God sends an angel in the midst of all he has to do in the universe as this guy down there is praying and saying, God, we've messed up. We have failed time and time again. You are awesome, but we've simply blown it. God says, hey, Gabriel, would you go down there and would you tell Daniel I love him? That's the power of prayer, friends. When we pray, God wants to come close to us to help us to realize how much he loves us, to help us know that the God of the universe cares about the details of our life, that he wants to come very close to us. Then he goes on to give him understanding about the vision. He says this in verse 24, and the vision is referring to Daniel 8 and the prophecy that he, the vision that he had seen before. He's coming to give him understanding. And notice how he answers this prayer. He doesn't come to it and give him all of what he's looking for. He wants to know, will a deliverer come or will we be set free from captivity here in Babylon and be able to go back and build Jerusalem? The angel comes and gives him a whole lot better answer than that. That's the way God answers our prayers. Look at what he says. 70 weeks are determined for your people, for your holy city to what? To finish the transgression. Let's try it one more time. To finish the transgression. To make an end of sins. He says, there's coming after 70 weeks something that will do away with all of the transgressions, that will do away with all of the sin. I'm not just going to rebuild this temple for you. I'm not just going to set you free, but I am going to give you freedom to love like God wanted you to love originally. I am going to instill a power in you that will change absolutely everything. He goes on to tell how this will happen. To make reconciliation for iniquity. To bring in everlasting righteousness. And righteousness is holiness. Holiness is likeness to God. And God is 
love. He says, I'm coming to bring in everlasting love. I'm coming to restore to this planet the, the unity, the love, all that I originally designed it for. To seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Now, here's a question. How long did he say until this happens? Seventy weeks. Now, how long is 70 weeks? How many days is that? 490 days. How did you figure that out? Seven days in a week times 70 weeks. I know your math is a lot better than mine, but that's okay. So seven times 70 is 490. He says, Daniel, you've messed up. You've fallen short. That's why you're praying. But I'm going to put an end to all of those sins, those transgressions in 490 days, which in Bible prophecy represents years. In 490 years from now, I'm going to put an end, not from now, but from when the city begins to be rebuilt. Does that number 490 sound familiar to you at all? Have you seen that somewhere else besides Bible prophecy? You think of a time? Do you remember when Peter came to Jesus in Matthew 18, 21, he said, Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I forgive my brother a sin against me? Should I forgive him up to seven times? Should I forgive my... If this guy gets it, he keeps messing with me, should I be really gracious to him and forgive him seven times? Jesus says, No. I do not say to you up to seven times, but I say to you up to seventy times times seven. All of a sudden to Peter, who knew the Old Testament, lights are going off. He's saying 70 times seven, that 70 times seven, that's from Daniel chapter nine. That's talking about the 490. This is something bigger. He wants to do something bigger in us and he wants to do it by what he goes on to tell Daniel. Verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. Friends, the answer to prayer is not just what God does for us. The answer to the prayer is the Messiah. The answer to your prayers, the things that you're longing for, the reason sometimes for unanswered prayer, the reason for our need to spend time on our knees is Jesus. Because God wants to send Jesus to us. He wants to give us himself. This is the preeminent answer to prayer. This is the one thing above all things that we could possibly want. And that is for Jesus to live in our hearts. And that happens through prayer. Daniel was dearly beloved because he was a man of prayer. He knew this close connection with God. And God is longing for us to come close to him through prayer. Review and Herald goes on to say, As in ancient times when prayer was offered, fire descended from heaven and consumed the sacrifice upon the altar. In answer to our prayers, the, hev- the heavenly fire will come into our souls. The light and power of the Holy Spirit will be ours. So for little Ruby, she sat in that classroom day after day after day. Mrs. Henry was so stubborn about daily making sure that she was going through her coursework, even though for the majority of the year, all of the white kids refused to join the class. So it was just Ruby and Mrs. Henry. 
Day in and day out, she continued to teach little Ruby. She says this, It was an ugly world outside. Neither of us ever missed a single day of school that year. It was important to keep going. She was determined to keep on educating this little child, even if nobody else would come to school. And notice what that did for Mrs. Henry. She goes on to say this, I grew to love Ruby and to be awed by her. Friends, that is the answer to prayer that we all need. Through prayer, we can come to love Jesus. We can come to be awed by Jesus. We can come to open our hearts more fully to him. That changed that school. The next year, white kids came back and class went on as usual and more African Americans joined and pretty soon that school became fully integrated. What if she hadn't prayed for her enemies? Will you and I dare to pray like Daniel prayed? Will we dare to pray prayers that focus on God's goodness and our badness? That don't bring anything of what we have to offer, but simply say, God, you're good, you're merciful, you're just. That's why I'm praying, because I know that you can do it. I know that you will answer my prayer. And will we pray for the people in our lives that we despise most, trusting that God can transform our experience with them as we pray. Friends, I want to invite you to consider being a part of the 10 days of prayer if you haven't already. Sometimes it can feel like, oh, we're just coming to another thing. It's another year. But God promises that he's a rewarder of those who seek him. That as you come to that time of prayer, you're not just going through a form if you'll just open up your heart to Jesus. And so as we close this morning, just as everyone bows their heads, I just want to give you the opportunity If you'd like to be a part of the 10 days of prayer, I just want to invite you to raise your hand and say, okay, I'm going to commit to coming tonight. It's tonight at 7, or maybe I'll come to several this week, or I'm going to come to every day possible this week. Just raise your hand and say, God, I really want to be a part of this. And even more than that, I just want to give you a time of silence in your own heart just to say, Jesus, will you captivate my heart in prayer? Will you lead me to dare to pray like Daniel prayed, where it's not just a form anymore, where it's not just about blessing my food and praying for some protection, but to really grow to love you and to be in awe of you? Just go ahead and and open up your heart to Jesus just now in the silence of your own heart. Thank you, Jesus, that you delight to hear our prayers. You've promised that if if we seek you, we'll find you when we search for you with all our hearts. Thank you that you don't have thoughts of evil towards us, but thoughts to give us a hope and a future. Father, lead us to pray like Jeremiah pled for the captives to pray. Lead us to pray for the blessing of those around us. Lead us to pray for our enemies, our friends, our neighbors. And most of all, God, what we want is the answer to prayer, which is Jesus. Please give us more of Jesus. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.